Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. In Barney Hoskins' absence, sunning himself on a Greek island beach, I'm Mark Pringle. I'm here with my colleague Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Mark. And with our special guest, it's a great pleasure to welcome David Stubbs. Hello, Mark. Hello, Jasper. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about Slade. We're going to be talking a little bit about Francis Rossi of status quo. It's Ooh, all goody. glamour. It's all glamour. <laughs> but mostly, we're going to be talking about David. Jasper, do you want to pass me a copy of the book so I can yes. get this title right? Absolutely. The paperback issue of David's marvellous story of electronic music, Mars by 1980, comes out, what, this week or last yeah, week? Yeah, in fact, they actually brought it forward because they'd run out of the original edition. So it actually came out supposedly on August 15th. You know. Ah! Well, anyway, so we're better, better late than never. Yeah. Fantastic, but we'll get on to that, that later. David, how did you become a pop music writer? Well, I started off in tandem, really, with Simon Reynolds mm-hmm. at Oxford, and there were three or four of us, and we created this magazine called Monitor, and it was kind of a cut above. It had a little bit of financing. I'm not quite sure where it came from, <laughs> but um, it was a bit of a cut above the sort of, like, really kind of cut-and-paste sort of, you know, post-punky, scratchy sort of fanzines that we were getting at the time. Sure. It was rather elegantly sort of designed and put out. And we did... I mean, I think Simon's voice was more fully developed. I mean, you know, right. we wrote these kind of slightly sort of dialectical things about Funk's fictional threat, you know, which made a lot of sense <laughs> in 1985, I assure you. Went, what uh-huh. the hell are you talking uh-huh. about? But it did, it did, honestly. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I kind of babbled on nonsensically like some demented Dadaist. But yeah, so we did that. And then Simon got a job at Melody Maker. Uh-huh. I was kind of in a slightly pompous phase where the only music I was listening to was avant-garde classical or jazz or funk. And, right. You know, and so, well, there was kind of felt sort of very, an- <laughs> a bit of antipathy towards music press at that time, yeah, which yeah. was descending into a sort of indie mire. Yeah, yeah. And I think I made a kind of rather windy declaration to the extent that I would never lower <laughs> myself, you know, to kind of huckstering and hacking as, as a music press journalist. And um, a couple of weeks later, someone from Melody Maker rang up and says, do you want a job? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so, you, 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 so you, you, you stuck to your principles for sort of the best part of a fortnight. Yeah, or a fraction of a second once the offer was actually made, yes. Yeah. But you, you, you and Simon were kind of joined at the hip in a curious yeah. kind of way, weren't you? So we, I sort of joined about 1986, mm-hmm. My first ever thing I did was a review of James Blood Ulmer live. Fantastic. Yeah. And I remember at that point, one of the lines was, uh, yeah, the wider the flares, the badder the funk was, uh, <laughs> you know. And again, you know, that, that made sense you know, at the time. Everything made sense. I and mean, I look back at it now, what the hell am I talking about? It made sense that week, yes. you know. I was writing, any, any time I was writing, I was writing for that week, you know, yeah. not for posterity. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't think there would be a posterity. Um, <laughs> but, um, Little did you know that no, we exactly, yeah. digging your And here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was an the arms race still on, yeah. From the beyond the grave. <laughs> but they, I think what happened with Simon is... There was a sort of hiatus, really, musically, mm. in the mid-80s. But then, about 86, 87, things really started to yeah. happen. Simon talks memorably about the return of rock, you know, talking about Husker, because rock had been a sort of, you know, people sort of talk about rockism, and rock's a slightly dirty word. Yes. That was a hangover from the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the dialectical wheel, you know, um, <laughs> sort of was span, spun, and there was like that, there was an emergence of, like, hip-hop and things like that, and suddenly there was stuff that you could really kind of sink your teeth yeah, into, yeah. especially if you wrote the way that me and Simon did in this very kind of expansive, 
expensive way, you know, really to, to talk about the materiality of sound, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, it, it, it took, it required the music. It wasn't, you know, uh-huh. I mean, the writing followed the music. It, uh-huh. it was fortuitous that, that, that things happened. And that really altered the character of Melody Maker because at one point in the mid-80s, it was looking like it was trying to be kind of an indie smash hit, yes. you know, which yeah. I think anybody really wants. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I think things right. really kicks on from there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, did, did you two feel sort of slightly outside of the Melody Maker mainstream in terms of what was mostly being written about in the paper at the time? Yeah, but that didn't last very long. And mm-hmm. I think we kind you of sort of took over. With, you know, with the sort of eating permission of people like Steve Sutherland and Alan Jones, yeah. they, were, they were very happy. They were very yeah. happy for us to do that. And I think it just required that reinfusion of energy. But, you know... Uh, I, I, mean, I, I think I can reasonably say that... that you were part of the renaissance of the Melody Maker insofar as the enemy had been ruling the roost. And there's a real sense by the late 80s, early 90s, is that mm. the Melody Maker's really on the upswing. Yeah. Whether it's yourselves, you've got people like Franco and writing <coughs> rather brilliantly mm. about hip-hop and so and, on. And always really early as well yes. on things like Public Enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great stuff. I have to say, I mean, I do... Slightly struggle to read some of your writing from that time because you use long words that I simply don't understand. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I struggled, Oxbridge I, bubble. Well, yeah. I struggled with Ian, Ian Penman and Paul Morley yeah. for very similar. Yeah. Were, were they an influence? I, oh, de- definitely they would have been, yeah. I think, you know, it probably... I think this is what happens, and then gradually I would have sort of developed something like my yeah. own voice, but definitely initially. And this is the thing, we were both avid readers, me and Simon, of, you know, Morley's and Penman's yeah. and people like that. You know, and, and the rest of them, you know, Andy Gill, Barney Hoskins, yes. you know, across the board, it was really... Yeah. You know, I didn't... I, I mean, you know, I... Ostensibly, I read English language and literature at Oxford, but in fact, I read the enemy. You know? <laughs> I don't regret that for a single second. I'm not thinking, damn, I wish I'd read more Sir Philip Sidney. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was going to ask, as someone who's also interested in jazz and mm. free improv and avant-garde classical music, what led you to that? Yeah, it was just references. I mean, you know, I would have liked certain names would have been kind of dropped. And so I mean, I would have found out about Edgar Ferrez, for instance, yeah. from getting a Frank Zappa album from a Leeds record library. And then he's got a quote, the present yes. day composer refuses to die. And I think, OK, I'll check out Edgar Ferrez then. So, you know, it's a sort of journey outwards, but based on sort of references that are dropped, you know, in, 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 yeah, in reviews and things like Enemy or whatever. I mean, I, I think it's fantastic you do that. I mean, I was a working musician at the time and I had no knowledge of this stuff, mm. and I had no—I wasn't inquiring enough to look for it. Weirdly, as a sixty-plus-year-old, I'm much more inclined towards this sort of experimental yeah. than, I, than yeah. I was back then. But um, I mean, you know, we're, we're, what are we, we're doing your marvelous Janet Jackson interview from 1987. <laughs> um, it's terrific because it's, it's an interview with a Jackson, and ja- yeah. the interviews with Jacksons are inherently kind of peculiar yeah i mean this one it started off and she sort of says are you from the sky (laughs) (laughs) what are you from the sky (laughs) i I mean in a sense are we all from the the sky (laughs) um sky magazine i thought you were from oh no 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 no, no, maker (laughs) yeah very odd yeah she had her two you know bodyguards our bodyguards in the sort of adjoining room and um it was yeah, it was very uh, it was, I mean she had made that marvellous control album which is uh, oh, yeah, Jam and yeah. Lewis at their, their, their finest as you say in the piece it's kind of hard mm. like a lot of albums around that time kind of half good the good stuff is fantastic yeah. and then there's the bad ballads and songs so. they always have to do the ballads yeah, yeah. yeah. we were talking about I think mean, David Hepworth's review of Off the Wall 
he says this is a great record. This is a half great record. You know, the, 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 the dance tunes are fantastic, but when Michael starts singing badly, you just want to mm. hang yourself, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I, I loved Control. I thought mm. it was a sensational record. And um, just the, Jam and Lewis at that point, absolutely on top of their game, just sensational sounding stuff. I'll briefly mention the fact that you were fantastically rude about my old band, which is something that <sighs> we've rather I find this. we've rather yeah. reversed our take on this. Mm. Is that I read your reviews of my old band and think he was absolutely right. Well, you're sort of being oh no, no I've seen the stuff now. I think the, the thing is now I say, look, it is what it is, and that wasn't my philosophy yeah. at the time. I was very Stalinist. So, it was so like you know. Just before you read this extract, Mark, describe in your words your old band. Oh, we were an old-fashioned soul band. This is the thing, is that we were exactly what you said we were. We were deeply reactionary. You know, whether we were good or not, the fact is we were deeply, deeply reactionary. And this is quite interesting because it all ties in with your book as well. I mean, in the sense that that book, Mars by 1980, has been waiting to be written by you for 30 years. You know, because you mm. say here, Hockhouse, don't come to say deconstruction. In spite of sampling, Stockhausen, and the almost frightening expanse of permutations their syntheses and metamorphoses make possible for collected sound, Hothouse choose to use a Hammond organ. I mean, <laughs> this is the way an emotional totalitarian's mind works. Sad 60s soul. I could almost wish, shoot Marvin Gaye. <laughs> oh, good heavens. Yeah, that sounds like me in the 80s, yeah. yeah. I mean, but the thing is, I love that you mentioned sampling Stockhausen and, and mm. so on and so In so a review of a... Yeah. In, in a review of a... Well, this is it. And I mean, the whole thing band. is, you know, yeah. it was nothing personal. Like, you were really <laughs> crushed by the dialectical wheels at that point, you know. Deep, no, no, yes. You know, re- revisitation of soul was... Uh, I didn't you know. read those reviews at the time because I was an enemy reader mm. and my management weren't going to point them out to me. You, re- you actually reviewed that single twice, the second time a year later. <laughs> That's right. I forgot, yeah, that, that, that did happen now and again. Yeah. But the thing is, actually, I was always quite relaxed about bad reviews. There's only one that really got to me, which is a live review in Record Mirror, where they said that I looked like Rodney Bees. Okay. For those who don't know, Rodney Bees is a character in a 1980s British TV sitcom. The 70s, in fact. 70s. Yeah. That hurt. But, you know, for example, Caroline Sullivan was fairly rude about us in a live review. And yeah. I read it at the time and thought, you know what, she may well be right. The thing is, you could have been the best hot house you could have been, or whatever, and it would still have got that review. I mean, it was just, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's not like, you know, the guitar playing sloppy and incompetent or anything like that. There's, you know, it's. it's, it's it, just, it didn't it's fit just, into yeah. your sonic world at exactly. the time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think it might be a good time to talk a bit about that sonic world in the context of Mars by 1980. Absolutely. Which is, I've been reading it in doing my homework for this episode. I really enjoy it. It's a fascinating book that goes all the way from early electronics through Stockhausen, as mentioned in the Hot House review, through <laughs> Depeche Mode and Aphex Twin and even up to Skrillex and sort of modern EDM and stuff. I haven't got yeah. to the latter stages of the book yet, but I certainly will be continuing yeah. to read it. And how did that Yeah, oddly enough, about? I mean, the title was it's something that occurred to me from 
when I was in my monitor days, mm. and I decided I was going to take on this grand project of doing a kind of writing about the year 1975 and mm-hmm. all of its kind of cultural significance. So I went to the Bodney Library, which you can get absolutely everything. And the first thing I did was call up a load of like, bound issues of the sun from that year to try and <laughs> take the cultural temperature of Britain in that point. And um, <clears throat> it was after a while I realised that this was a bit too much like hard work, this project, so I abandoned <laughs> it. But when I did look through these things, I noticed there was a recurring series of stories about the next space mission. Yes. So the Apollo, the, the Apollo missions was finished about three years later in 72. Yeah. But, you know, they, they were talking about, you know, like how we're going to, you know, it wasn't like if, frontier. it was when. And yes. It was going to be about, it was going to be Mars and it was going to be around about the year 1980. <laughs> and of course, you know, realize, even in 1985, you realised that this, that wasn't going to happen. And that consequently, we were living in this kind of post-space age, you know, post-space age, post-modern or whatever, in which things like, you know, synthesizers are now becoming kind of ubiquitous or whatever, you know, and that's the sort of quandary of our times, post-modern, post-space age. And in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, a lot of the music I'm writing about still has this wonderful strangeness and alienness Mm -hmm. and otherness, which, you know, is just really... It's it's also sort of about time, because Mm. the thing about electronic music is that it's looking to a future, well, it was mm. looking to a future which never really arrived yeah. as such. Yeah. You know, so it's a future which is already in the past. And in it, a sense, it, yeah. It was, yeah, it's lost futures, futures that were never realised, yeah. futures that never materialised, yeah. and that's where it turned like hauntology come in. And, and, and that's, <laughs> there's a sort of corollary with that, with, with the kind of ideals of the 20th century. I mean, people like Stockhaus and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Rez, and even people like Russolo, the Italian futurist, <clears throat> fascist as well, unfortunately. But they yes. hadn't come with this idea that humankind thanks to the sort of emerging technologies, could sort of exceed itself, you know, in yep. ways that are kind of, you know, I mean, it, technology was proceeding at such a pace around the turn of the like, 20, you know, 19th, 20th century that, you know, you think, well, anything is possible. You can have x-rays, bloody yes. hell, you know, you can have manned flight, that they were really sort of thinking in sort of really grand terms that haven't really, we, don't, we haven't even had jetpacks, you know, so it's not really, <laughs> it's not really there, we've got happened. the bloody internet, you know, which is, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but, um, yes, yeah. So that, you know, there was such a kind of idealism about the potentiality of like you know, humankind, you know, and the whole man-machine thing. Yeah, I mean, I'd say in a sense, it's a kind of book of a third and then two thirds. The first third being very much about the experimentalists in the sort yeah. of twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, where they are inventing the technologies which are extraordinarily limited. And then, in a sense, like the air goes out of, though it hasn't gone out of experimental mm. music, but it never sold. It was always limited. It was always marginal. And so, the second two thirds is when electronics moves into pop music. Yeah. And what I found interesting about that section of the book is that, in a way, the two groups of people were the ones who pioneered it: were black Americans and white English people. Yeah. Of course, there were exceptions that proved the rule. Suicide being oh, one. Yeah. Yeah. Still rappels, though. I think you give rather short. short yeah, I do to, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest, yeah, but, 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 I should have got a bit more but, with them. Pretty interesting. And of course, with Steve, in the case of Stevie Wonder, who you regard yeah. as the great pioneer of use of synthesizers yeah. in R and B music, that one of the guys he worked with was an English guy. Was Malcolm Cecil the English guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Margaret Tonto's expanding head. Yes. And again, house music is how mm. house music is adopted by white England in a way that it yeah. never really was adopted in America. Yeah. And the, 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 those two forces, mm. which go right back to, let's say, the 60s in the way that the British adopted rhythm and blues, yeah. there's been some sort of odd dynamic there. between. And, and in this case, it was the adoption, wholesale adoption of electronic instruments. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously, in terms of, like, the experimentalists and, and pop, I mean, mm-hmm. the bridging 
characters, people like Kraftwerk, you know, and yeah. uh, obviously studied with Stockhausen and like that. And then, and they were creating, you know, they were creating a kind of art music with mm-hmm. Kraftwerk, even though it was pop. They were essentially creating a musical Bauhaus, yeah. really, you know, and they were Bauhaus, Gilbert and George, people like that, all kind of figuring the whole mm-hmm. concept of Kraftwerk. But generally in the book, I was kind of interested. I didn't want to go into the sort of techie side of things too much. First of all, because I'm not really. I can barely even take change of plug, you know, the <laughs> plug or like that. I have no technical aptitude whatsoever, you know, yeah. and anything technical, I'm just copying out. I was really far more concerned from the point of view of consumer, the way that music is received yeah. in the world, you know, why at certain points, you know, electronic music is, you know... Jasper, we were talking about this yesterday, Mark and I, and... I sort of was wondering, not having finished the book, whether at any point you do talk a bit more about the technological side of it. A little and bit, this is something. Little, you know. But, I mean, I think Wait, your, well, point, your yeah. point and your reason for not going into that too deeply is a very good one in the sense mm. that you don't want to get bogged down in no. this sort of nerdy, techie side of it. Yeah. But I think, and this is something, because I'm a sort of synth head enthusiast, whatever you want to call He's it. Nerd. a modular synthesizer. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would have been interested in that side of it a bit more, but also from the perspective of I've been teaching some people a bit about mm. synthesis from an analogue perspective, the very yeah. basics. And I think there is a way of talking about that that does make mm. it very engaging and actually adds a new dimension yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, to yeah. the... Experience of yeah. the music, maybe and, the know, next and, and the, the yeah. Yeah. Off into yeah, or, or, or some <laughs> or, or somebody else writes a supplementary book, yeah. you know, because it's a book that merits obviously an approach from, from, no, from, from mean, different it, angles. And certainly, we'll talk about the implications of yeah. analog and people returning to analog, yes. and why they're returning to analog, and the tactile aspects. Really like really into into the, the idea of the synthesizer as an instrument with its own distinct character and texture mm. rather mm. than trying to recreate another sound because that's what early mm. synthesis was as you talk about often mm. trying to do is create yeah. a sound that already exists in so the world i would yeah. i would but say then it shifted yeah, into yeah, new sound yeah, i would yeah. say that though reached its zenith quite late on which is in the, the late 80s when mm. yamaha released the dx7 keyboard which was virtually impossible to program because it was such an arcane fm synthesis was such an arcane mechanism and it did kind of reproduce real instruments. You had an electric piano, which was kind of like a rote, and you heard it over every rhythm and blues record in that sort of period. Yeah. And so the return to analogue, which is very much a mm. hot thing these days, mm. is it's simply because you can manipulate it. Yeah. You can play oh, with this instrument. Interestingly, in also, even FM synthesis is now experiencing more of a revival and, and more creative uses yeah. because computers allow you to program them because user interfaces have got so much yeah, better yeah. than they were in the days of the DX7. Yeah. You can use FM synthesis mm-hmm. in ways that create totally new yeah. sounds. Like, mm-hmm. there's a producer called Fote. I don't know whether he uses... We were listening yeah, to him. Yeah, I mentioned because we were Fauté. listening to him. Fote. <laughs> and he's, I think he's brilliant. And he makes a lot of sounds that you just wouldn't have heard Mm -hmm. you couldn't have heard because the technology wasn't really there i don't know necessarily whether he uses Mm -hmm. fm or not what exactly uses probably granular resynthesis that again only becomes possible when you have the processing power to be able to do it that you get new sounds that you would never yeah. have got okay. And you even get them in, really in pop music, in just sort of chart, you know, right, chart exactly. music. You know, you're actually hearing some extraordinary stuff. Mm-hmm. 
usually influential um, dubstep and future bass have been massively yeah, influential yeah. on. And even on, stuff that like, ultimately is a bit, you know, and then the vocalist comes in and it's all some shit about going on holiday or whatever, you know. But it's <laughs> but even so, quite often the actual production sometimes is it, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, the one thing about electronic instruments, electronic music, is that if you hear someone playing a violin, playing a piano, playing hmm. guitar, they can create an identifiable style and method which you can recognise over and over hmm. again in a way that you have to look upon electronic music differently yeah. in that, that it's not about the, the way you impose your means of playing on yeah. an instrument which is instantly recognisable. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's not about virtuosity. This is yeah. the thing. It's the whole principle of organised sound. It's yeah. about, you know, conception, about imagination. I think that's one of the reasons why, apart from since kind of really coming down in price mm-hmm. in the late 70s, there's an explosion of, you know, synth pop in the early 80s because I think punk's partly there's reaction against this sort of virtuosity for its own yeah, sake yeah. of prog rock. Also, a lot of the kind of post-punk people are very influenced by kraut rock, which, you know, yes. at, at the same time as, like, the UK, US prog rock things going on. But they're actually, even though they're actually highly trained musicians, you know, uh, are thinking conceptually mm-hmm. rather than in terms of, like, you know, sort of running up and down two yeah. keyboards at once. Yeah. Know, but then equally, you, you get the human leagues of the Depression yeah. modes yeah. of this world, who, a lot of it's economic. How mm. can we make a noise when we can't really play? And yeah. the answer is, a, 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 you know, what, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and um, a sequencer and a drum machine and, and, and a, a shoddy, yeah. shoddy drum machine. I found that a very exciting period. Mm. I mean, I, you know, was I a big Depeche Mode fan? No, but I admired them hugely. And then Vince Clark went to do some interesting stuff afterwards. And they, they themselves, which is extraordinary, when their main songwriter leaves, mm. and you go back, you talk about this at some point yeah. in the book, they regroup and actually become. Massive. I was in Los yeah. Angeles in 1988, and they were about to play something like Dodgers Stadium or something. It was like, yeah. how the hell did well, that this, happen? this is the thing. In the book, I taught about a, a memorable line, I remember by Paul Morley, in which he talks about hard groups like Depeche Mode. He wrote that in the early yes. 80s. And it was clearly a wind-up of all the kind of new wave. Of British like, what do you mean hard? Tigers of Pantang, that's hard. Then <laughs> doilums, then fluffy little... Buffs, you know, <laughs> that was obviously, you know, what it was meant to, that was in my inside. But in a sense, Depeche Mode were hard yeah. and early, what was hard insofar as it's endured because it's, it's concept, as an approach to pop music making, yeah. it's absolutely sound or whatever and, <laughs> and do a lot longer than the Tigers of Pantang, you know. No, I, I, I think. I think the the early 80s, that period of the early 80s when those first... And, you know, to be fair, Gary Newman, much mocked, but, you know, mm. he carved out an extraordinary niche in that sort of territory. Yeah. You were hearing stuff you'd never heard before. I mean, yes, you'd heard traces of it, definitely in craft work and, mm. and a few things. But also, these were kids who also wanted to make pop records. So mm. they were writing the clearest, most melodic pop tunes, mm. but building, constructing them on a completely different sort of set of yeah. things. Very interesting time. I mean, another thing that interests me, again, talking about the impact of it, is, like, say, the Moog synthesizer, which was introduced in 1967 Mm -hmm. at the, I think, the Monterey Pop Festival. Sure, yeah. And it's like, this is the future, but it's not the present, you know. And, yeah, and and, and people do use the sort of Moog synthesizer, but, you know, even like the Monkees, the Beatles, obviously... Beach Boys or whatever, but it's like a little kind of add-on. It's just a sort of yeah. you know, a lot yeah. extra. What it doesn't do is supplant guitar music because at that point, the whole idea of like the you know the white 
male, generally white, white <laughs> rock guitar hero is king, is at the centre Abs- of, like, you know, the, the, the dominant figure. Absolutely. Strenuous, honest, emotional effort, you know, <laughs> labouring hard, playing brilliantly. These are the kind of yeah, supreme yeah. values. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard for Synths to get a kind of look in Turning and, and a cut-off knob yeah. doesn't yeah. have quite the yeah. same sort of visual yeah. and impact. Doing, and That's right, yes, exactly. Yeah. I, They've got I mean, effort as well. Effort is extraordinary. Yeah. Interestingly, Eno with Roxy Music, mm. one of the reasons why he was out of that band after two albums was that he was in danger of supplanting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it was mm. a traditional band. I had a sax player, slash mm. oboist, and guitar player, bass player, drums. But Eno was in danger of basically kind of wiping the floor with all. He's going to be top Brian. You, you, know. Know, you, you know, and yes, for me, that was that was pretty my first real exposure to... to uh, yes, because prog bands are already using Moogs by that point, but mm. something about the way Eno used the VCS3... Mm. It was a completely different beast. Yeah, yeah. And again, it sort of takes, starts to take centre stage, starts to become a, an instrument that is used for yeah. itself rather than, as you were saying, an add-on. One thing I thought it would be interesting to talk about was partly because we're featuring an interview with Aphex Twin, mm. but you also talk about Aphex Twin in the book. I mean, mm. Aphex Twin is a producer who has managed to really make different things mm. with electronic means of all sorts, whether sampling or synthesis or whatever it's, it's he's doing. And he doesn't do interviews very often, and you've interviewed him. I think I've done three times in the end. Yeah, yeah. The very first time I interviewed him was probably around about ninety-one. Mm-hmm. Still, and I remember going in there and saying, "You know, so you really must have like listened to people like Stockhouse and perhaps early Steve Reich, Brian Eno, Eric Satie. I never heard of him. <laughs> Space Invaders. That's where I got it from. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you could never... To screw up your questions. Exactly. Okay, fine. So I said, okay, let's cast our mind back to pubs in the late 70s, see if I can come up with some Space Invader-related questions. (laughs) I think he was always a little bit of a wind-up merchant. I think the one that was like 1994, and, you know, and he did the interview around where he lives. He says, you want to be careful around here. You don't want to be hanging around here, you know, after, after dark weather. Stoke Newington. Do <laughs> 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 you, you get the sense he's just taking the piss a bit? Really? It was it, it, it was strange. In that interview, he was talking a lot about how he just wants to be making, pumping out music constantly, mm-hmm. and almost like having sort of, you know, sort of machinery attached to himself that in kind of like you know he just feels this need constantly well, like music, to write dreaming through. music. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and dreaming, being able to control his dreams and like that. And Don't you say in the book that? That lasted for a while, and eventually he sort of ran out of the. Well, then he the did. Then, yeah, for that. somebody that's. Well, you, you would appear so because then his, his productivity sort of drops right off the edge of the cliff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was. It, it was. It was always. It was a slightly puzzling figure. Yeah. <laughs> John, he, Johnny he does make very interesting mm. music. I mean, oh, yeah. like it ranges from beautiful short little piano ballad yeah. pieces. just really hard to listen to noises. Come on, you cunt, let's have some Apex Acid! I mean, I loved it. I think a lot of oh, it yeah, is really too. exciting. And I, but I think what he also succeeded in doing was somehow making himself almost like shorthand for... You know, electronic music yeah. in the 90s in a way, which is obviously, yeah. you know, not really supposed to be about faces and characters, but merely about the mm-hmm. dissemination of beats, etc., etc. Yeah. And you just get the sense that 
he's managed to do that despite the fact that he just couldn't care less what anybody really thinks he almost doesn't like when people like his music he's just mm. sort of doing it because he has to there's this as you said there's this urge this drive mm. to make stuff and that's how it ends mm. up being yeah. so i mean w- one of the other pieces we're running of yours as writer of the week this week is an interview with dj shadow and at which point we move on to sampling as, mm. as a specific sort of tool were you a fan are you a fan oh of- def- definitely yeah and also at that point it was a kind of you know, alternative, you know, the sort of Yemeni of like the retrograde mania of Britpop, etc., etc. Yeah. I mean, later on, not not unfortunately, on this interview, the, the, the one Derrida quote I can understand is where he says, There are no <laughs> books, only other books. You know, in other words, everything. <laughs> and I was thinking with DJ Shadow, someone said, There's no music, only other music. Yeah. You know, everything <laughs> is now an assemblage of like, you know, what's gone, gone, yeah. gone before. I mean, in a sense, that's both the wonderful advantage and also the huge disadvantage of sampling, sampling the technology. DJ Shadow is one of the greatest crate diggers in history, mm. you know. I mean, notorious. Mm. But how much can just simply assembling pre recorded elements and chopping them, changing them, moving around, it's it sort of. I don't. I feel people end up chasing their tails a bit with that. Well, sort possibly. Of... I mean, it, it's. I suppose sometimes there is that kind of. I mean, for me, one of the worst things about sampling was that it seemed to imply that there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And quite often it's like referencing the past with a sort of inferiority complex. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, James Brown, Led Zeppelin, you Mm -hmm. know, those are really great days where just everything is just a pale shadow Mm -hmm. and all of that. Which is why I was a big fan of the group of the Young Gods, because I always thought they launched us into post-postmodern terrain, because the the sample that they used, they seemed to create a sort of fire, you know, the way they did it. And it seemed, felt very, they managed to use sampling in a way that felt very elemental and original. I mean, I, I, I would argue the same about people like Public Enemy. Yeah, that, I mean, this is it. They use, yeah, they use things in a really incendiary way. If you yeah. think about Rebel Without Pause, yeah. isn't it? You know, with the kind of like that rising sort of kettles boiling type sound. And there is an argument that when something became almost impossible for hip-hop artists mm. after a couple yeah. of big court cases, yeah. hip-hop took a pretty big dive Sonically, it did, yeah. All those little plastic Dr. Dre type beats, yeah. And there was less emphasis on, yeah. I think that's one of the things that DJ Shadow bemoans in that piece, you know. Yeah, I I didn't, I wasn't really a fan of the turn that mainstream hip hop took. What I also like about sampling in hip hop is that if you look at where hip hop is at the moment and a lot of the influences that it gets and it has on other forms of music like jazz, is Mm. that sampling has sort of encouraged this view outside of itself Mm -hmm. outside of hip-hop and if you look at someone like kendrick lamar Mm. you know he's using a lot of jazz sounds he's almost like creating his own samples for use on his records Mm -hmm. by working with live musicians and then reusing those recordings in a sampling reactionary to me (laughs) (laughs) It, it absolutely isn't though because it's deeply it's trying to harness that revolutionary thing about jazz and like sounds that are familiar, but yeah. that you can repurpose in a political sense, which is what Kendrick does. Sure. Mm. I mean, I think probably the first time I was aware of samples, I'm sure they've been used a lot in hip-hop before, but there's probably No Sellout, the Malcolm X No yeah. Sellout single, which I felt, I felt electrifying. And also it had the crudest drum machine groove, which in itself was kind of oddly electrifying. Distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. Malcolm X. No 
Is it possible to be lit up anymore by electronic music insofar as new stuff you've never quite mm, heard before? I mean, yes. it's tricky. That could be a sort of personal <laughs> thing. Yes, but yeah, I think people could yes. have, ind- yeah, I mean, people probably have sort of individual sort of epiphanies. Generally, it's, it's tough because obviously, this is why you know, I found it much easier to sort of write about all reference music in the 20th century to the 21st because decades have sort of characteristics the 70s the 80s the 90s mm-hmm. and immediately if you all kinds of sort of signifiers and references come up you know whether it's not just music but culture or whatever whereas in the 21st century it's just much harder to do that not because nothing has happened mm-hmm. but perhaps because too much has happened yes. it's, it's a mushroom cloud this sheer diffuseness of activity yeah. electronic music has certainly had a sort of part to play in mm-hmm. all of that you know because of the way it's expanded you know the potential means of production or what have you and i suppose it depends i mean if you're just I don't know, super saturated in sound history like someone like myself, it is actually hard to to get that sense of the otherness and weirdness yeah. of electronic music. I get, for instance, listen to Perubu for the first time and Alan Ravenstein, the way mm-hmm. he used like, synths as this sort of abstract brainwaves yeah. running through what's otherwise... I, I, I would say that Afro-Caribbean, British black music has, mm. has succeeded in doing that, but not for us. Mm. You know, grime and so on and so forth and its predecessors and the things coming out after it are very almost with what we're talking about, the people in the, the, the Depeche Modes in the early 1980s using the basic stuff they had available. Mm. Well, now these kids living, wherever they're living, have got, uh, they've got a laptop. Yeah. But no sort of set idea about how music should sound. Yeah. So you get really extraordinarily jarring sort of things. Now, frequently very ugly to my ears, but that's the one area I feel an energy coming yeah. out of in, ter- in terms of the use of electronics, the use of electronic sound. Yeah. Another great thing for me about electronic music is that there's a lot of, and traditionally been a lot of women involved as well, yeah. you know, as pioneers and things like that, and my theory about that is because, as opposed to rock, that rock with the guitar and the kind of sensory, it's, 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 yeah, it's kind of gendered. Yeah. And electronic music is more open, it's less gendered, and I think there's a potential in electronic music as well, you know, with, like, vocal autotuning and tweaking or whatever, to become rather than merely oh. be whatever, you know, and so you can have sort of representations of gender fluidity yeah. or whatever. And I mean, you, like you, you, you celebrate Daphne Oram and Delia Derbyshire in, in your book, and I think for both you and I, our very first exposure to electronic music was the Doctor Who theme tune. Yeah, without even knowing that yeah. it was her. I mean, you know, I remember reading the credits, and it said, like, theme music by Ron Grainer. I thought, <laughs> I'm golly, did the Steptoe and Son theme. He's <laughs> versatile. <laughs> I mean, goes all places. It was extraordinary. I mean, mm. as, as, a, as a small child, hearing that music and it was otherworldly it it was At the same time, you kind of sort of because it was you'd hear it every week or all the time, you take it for granted. Like, so you won't remember John Craven's news round. Remember at the end, that's a radiophonic workshop. Yeah, yeah, and and actually think about it, you sort of take that out of the context of sheer tea time familiarity. You know, that's a, yeah, quite a little sound. I, I had a job as a technical stores porter at the BBC in around sort of seventy nine eighty, and we used to go and deliver stuff to the radiophonic workshop in Maida Vale, and they wore lab coats. That's all, brilliant. All the people working it. there mm. wore lab coats. You know, yeah. They weren't musicians. They were, they no, were, they, they, and they didn't really... 
it's almost like I think they kind of internalise that, especially people like Delia Derbyshire. And of course, there was a lot of condescension from other departments. They just saw them as the sound effects people, you yeah. know, the Quinlan people that hold up one Foley of those sheets, artists, you know, yeah, to keep shaking things and stepping on things. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Popping balloons for gunshots and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but the BBC allowed it to... It allowed it to happen, yeah. And people like Delia Derbyshire did great work. And I mm. think she's probably a bit too self-effacing, actually, because she... I mean, she did this brilliant sound art in uh, around 1964 with this sound artist, Barry Bermange. Yeah. These wonderful kind of, um, you know, these sort of swirling ambient pieces that she creates then. I mean, they just feel way ahead of the time. And then later on, I think it's 1971, this is sort of 90-second clip of her says, ah, don't worry, this is just for demonstration purposes of no consequence. And <laughs> you hear this piece, and it's the bloody Apex 20, 1971. It's just this jackhammer techno thing happening. You just bloody invented techno, Delia, with a hair and no consequence. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I don't think she ever... I get the sense that as a person, she never really understood her own context. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's true. Um, you know, she didn't regard herself as an artist. No, no. That's right, as some sort of, you know, as a sound engineer or whatever. Yeah. Rather mm-hmm. than creative, yeah. That's interesting. That's yeah. fast. Um, the... Last thing we're running of yours is marvellous rap. Oh, <laughs> Yo, bum rush, rush Fuko. Oh, yes. That, 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 that you did with, with Simon Reynolds, which is just extraordinarily funny because you're gluing all of your sort of philosophical approach to mm. everything mm. on top of hip hop. So it's got you know, rocking turntables because we know how to please you. Overdose on jouissance to the very point of seizure. I mean, that's just. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, Post structuralist, chin stretch, and semiotician, Mr. DJ PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that kind of works. It's just, it, it, it does. It's just, it's, mm. it, it, it's very funny. But uh, no, I mean. Yeah, definitely check it out. It is very, very funny. It, 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 it's great. We were sort of hoping you might give us a performance of it, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I might let no. down material. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll think that one through. Perhaps I'll. Um... Uh, I for another we'll day. Talk about the audio. Should we talk about the audio? Yes, sure. Um, well, it's with it's Maureen Payton in a taxi with status quo's Francis Rossi. And it's kind of he comes over as kind of reasonably charming in a fairly reactionary old codger mm. sort of way. He talks about why he basically lives on the road, loves touring. Talks about his family. Talks about his wives in a slightly strange way. Yeah, it's, I found it a bit peculiar. Well, we but got this clip where he describes meeting the Queen and this uh, is very uh, funny. Uh, her struggle with her underwear. When you met the Queen, by then you're auctioned off your ponytails. Yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. Uh, was it quite nerve-wracking meeting the Queen? Or no, she we met, I've done that. We've done that a few times. We we did something for her once in Berlin. I think was to, to get commission of the troops, and we had this Scottish wardrobe lady at the time. And this guy was working with us. She kept winding her up, saying, "Don't forget, you're going to meet your Queen tonight. She's not my fucking Queen." You do as you bloody told us, your Queen. You get <laughs> yes, in there. It's not my fucking Queen. Get in. Brilliant. So yeah. anyway, we're getting this line up all the military people and as the Queen goes to get in the car which was a Mercedes mm. not a Bentley mm. she hoped her knickers out of a crack and after that the old oh, she's fine by me that's okay it's all right for me she's fine she's my Queen okay and what, the, the Queen hoiked the Queen just as she got she sort of just little injustice and then she got and it was like they made a reel for everybody and um, I think she's wonderful whether you're a royalist or not Ha, ha, ha. 
that's an image I will never, never. (laughs) It's one of those daft things, though. This is one of the daft ways which Monarch is perpetuated. It's like recently the Sunrunners thing about how at Balmoral she has one of her servants order fish and chips for for her and says, I see, she's just like us. (laughs) Well, there's two significant differences there at the start, but she's just a human like us. I mean, in a a sense, Francis Rossi is a classic man of his time and his background, Mm. you know. He's quite interesting about his family. He's an Italian mother and a British father, obviously, the other way around. Anyway. What is interesting, though, and what the, the clip about the Queen's knickers that we've just listened to kind of points out is that he actually is deeply uncool and he's not that bothered about it. Yeah. He just isn't cool and he knows it and he's sort of relatively funny about himself from that perspective. I have to confess to seeing mm. Status Quo live twice. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, the first time... You what? Status Quo started off as what uh, Joe Boyd would call beer drinkers psychedelia with pictures of matchstick men and things like mm. that. And I saw on the bottom of the bill supporting Lynn Russell at the Albert Hall in 71, and they were just in the process of reinventing themselves as a boogie band. Mm. I was tripping on fairly strong acid at the time. Oh, I, just them, good. I just remember them bouncing up and down on the stage mm. under these lights, <laughs> going dum da dum da dum da dum And then I saw them, because uh, I went to this show because my sister had was... We, we, put it this way, we were, we were hanging out with an awful American band called Montrose, who was supporting status quo at Wembley Arena. Mm. And then we after that Montrose. we went to we went to Mr. Charles of the Montrose and my sister yeah. and I had a row in front of the band, which is amazing. <laughs> but so I have seen Status Quo live twice. A ghastly band, really. Oh yeah, but I'll tell you what, there's one thing that I discovered fairly early on as a music journalist is that I became deeply disappointed with the interview experience. I thought it would be a much more, you know, I thought we've interviewed people like musicians I really like, that, you know, be a really kind of healthy sort of articulate exchange of whatever, you know. But, you know, quite often I think it was perhaps the era that I was in, it was coming into sort of My Bloody Valentine and it was just very sullen and passive-aggressive quite often with these little indie bands and it was like anything you say might be taken down and used as evidence against you, et cetera, et cetera. You interview the metal people, the people whose music I hated, you know, as a sort of good old sort of good enemy reading boy of the early 80s, whatever, whether it was quite, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, Kiss, you know, and it was just like, actually go out and interview these people, and it was like, bless you, as they were talking, you're giving us exactly what you could see the piece, kind of like self-assembling wallpaper, the columns (laughs) lining up, yes, thank you, this is what we need, you understand, we need good copy, good entertaining copies, you know, that was, you know, whereas, you know, some of the other people, I didn't even bless him, but Jay Maskis, I mean... Pulling teeth doesn't really do justice to pulling your teeth. It was just desperately kind of monosynthetic. I, I, like... I, I think I think that's kind of great, actually. I mean, mm. I, I, I do like that. I mean, you know, the, 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 also metal as a genre is one that, you know, every now and again I will stick my toe into that genre. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Has, though, of course, Quo weren't a metal band, per se. Oh, yeah. I mean, the other bands who are featured on the site this uh, week are week? Slade. Did you have any uh, strong feelings? About oh yeah, Slade? I love Slade. Oh yeah, Slade was my band, definitely. Yeah, in 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 the seventies as a kid, and and I really took it to heart. I you know like chart placings, people like Sweet and Slade. You know they were my people. I remember the devastation one week where Dawn held off. I can't remember who it was either, it was Sweet or Slade. You know that number two, and to me that was like Arsenal losing. You know, I was <laughs> devastated. I really took chart placings to heart um, wow. at that point. I think that. Slade were interesting. I'm, I, my first memory of them 
I'm a little bit a bit older than you, mm. is them as a skinhead band. They yeah. briefly had this sort of image of the skinhead band. And then they reemerged with this extraordinary thing, way pre-prints of butchering the English language yes. in, the, in their song titles. Noise, yeah. yeah. But there's something enormously endearing about them. You know, we, so we got a Lester Bangs interview with them. Lester Bangs goes to Liverpool to meet Slade, which is from 73, from Let It Rock. And Phil Simons meets them in 71, when it's pre-glam, before they'd sort of done, done the... Ch- I guess they were probably still a skinhead band in 71. <laughs> and Rob Chapman looks back uh, later. I mean, it's very hard to be rude about Slade. They're, 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 I'm talking about the royal family. They've almost yeah. become a sort of that, you know, in, in terms yeah, you, of British pop, you know. Yeah, really? you, can't, you can't really lambast Slade. I mean, all right, around the time of Get Down and Get With It in the late 70s, they perhaps weren't quite down and with it, but um, <laughs> generally... Uh, Neither down nor with it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I also hear that Noddy Holder is an absolute sweetheart. That, that, yeah. that People say Dave Hill's a bit of a pain and so on and so forth. Noddy Holder, oh, it's great, he, yeah. he turns up to Keith Oldham's Pluckers and strum, you know, strummers and writers lunches. And everyone just loves him. He's he's, he's just a That's thoroughly, nice. thoroughly. I, nice I interviewed Noddy Holder on his fiftieth birthday, oddly enough, as part. He just happened to be doing a kind of round. He was in some TV show at the time, and yeah, and I just did it, you know, and I just said, so "What's it like being 50? You know, oh, grand old age. Ah, it's just all great. You just just say what you want, you know. And this is great. And this is, well, yeah, I'm turning fifty-seven next week. I'm <laughs> looking forward to all of that. I'm not quite sure I can say what I want and get away with it. Or is it time I went through some of the stuff that's yes, going Yes, I think it is time that you went some, through some of the stuff yeah. that's going into the archive this I mean, week. I'll keep it fairly, fairly quick this time. We've got a very nice Richard Williams review of Cecil Taylor at Alice Pathogen from 1969. And one of the pleasures of my job is finding Richard Williams writing about out there jazz in the late 60s, early 70s, Melody Maker. He is, is such a good stylist as a writer. And he says, Taylor's a stunning performer. His solos are played so fast that his hands blur before your eyes. But when the ears become accustomed to his speed, his playing is shown to be incredibly lucid, lucid and inventive. Which I think is kind of... I've struggled. Do you like Cecil Taylor? Cecil, Cecil Taylor? I gave him a go. It's quite hard work, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, unit structures. Yeah, I found it a little bit... Uh... Yeah, I feel sort of maybe when I'm 70, I'll just sit in front of the stereo for a week and just listen to season 10. I mean, that's one of the old things about avant-garde jazz. Always then, Ornan Coleman, you know, called mm-hmm. Always Fat Eminent Invisible. And he kind of implied when he says, look, you just feel it. You don't have to, it's not cryptic, it's not like a cryptic mm-hmm. crossword. You don't have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Just, just accept it. Experience it. Yeah, experience it. Yeah. Whereas I did feel. Don't overthink it. Yeah. Yeah, I did feel with Cecil Taylor that it was cryptic and there was something I was supposed to yeah. figure oh, out. Oh, really? There. Okay. But, but, that, but that, was, that was a while ago. I mean, I might come back to it. And, no, that's, and, that's, a, that's very, very interesting. That's how I got to like bebop, is by not not trying to understand it yeah. anymore. I mean, if you try to understand it, those expensive chords they play, all yeah. those kind of... But if you just let it happen to you, yeah. you know... You see, I wonder... Actually, Mark, let me make the same... You, I don't, do, you, do you make music? Yes. Yeah, well, there you are. You both make music. I'm not one of these old rock genders of frustrated musicians. Not only can I not play any music, I have no desire Good. to create music at all. <laughs> I speak entirely, and I think entirely consumer. I think that probably yeah. when you listen to music, you probably can't help as music makers in perhaps listening to and hearing things and wincing at things or whatever, or appreciating certain things. I don't, and I experience it purely... As a consumer on the other I, side of the world. I would have said, I would have said yes, that was me. I'd say mm. far less now that actually right. in my old age, I've yeah. decided that actually 
that gets in the way of the actual pleasure of yeah. experiencing it. You know, so for example, if I see someone with a pile of electronics on a table at one of let's say Richard Sanderson's gigs, you and I mm-hmm. go to. I'm not interested in what those boxes are. Yeah. I just want to experience the sound yeah. that's coming out. I know. actually think there's room for both. I think mm. you can have a sort of first-order appreciation of experiencing the music mm-hmm. as, you know, just its mm-hmm. sort of phenomenological content yeah. that yeah. you get to listen to. Yeah. And then there's a sort of second-order, mm-hmm. more analytical side of, like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. How are those sounds made? Yeah what went into it from a music theory, yeah. musicological perspective, that I think, I, I mean, I find to be interesting and yes, I, I enjoy I, I, it, basically. I, I, for me, I've started listening to quite a lot of 12-tone stuff in my old age, and that is based on very rigid yeah, theory. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I have absolutely no interest in that rigid theory. Yeah. And if I just listen to it as just notes, mm. as sounds... Yeah. I'm really happy with yeah. it. Yeah. I'm not saying that you need that no. second order mm. thing, nor I, I think that if I had to choose one, I'd choose the, the first order thing, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I, you know, okay. you can't, I don't think you can get real pleasure from the analytical side of thing in the same, in the same sort of immediate sense. But what I do like about it is just that it, it's a sort of interesting intellectual pursuit, basically. It's, it's mm. fun to me to think about. Mm-hmm. And not from a perspective of I need to understand this to enjoy it, just from a perspective mm. of Oh, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. It's sure. of interest. Well, there's definitely no right and wrong or superior and inferior about any of this. No. So it's just, it's, no. it's 1970 disc, Al Green interview by Phil Simes. Now, this is great stuff, getting an Al Green interview from 1970, because it's just him reaching his peak mm. as, as mm. an artist. And he's already eccentric, and Al Green is kind of quite famous now for his eccentricities and in interviews. Yeah. And he's already, he's already there. But he comes up with some really nice stuff. Is I think, I can't remember what the question was. He says... It's about, you know, is he too upwardly mobile? Is his music too upwardly mobile? Because I remember at the time not liking, liking Earl Green because it sounded too slick and it took me some time to kind of get through that. And he says, I don't put any, down anyone who tries to improve himself. We all want that. But you don't just leave the past behind. And, uh, and so it's, that's quite an interesting statement, mm. you know. He's, you know, on the one hand, he's producing modern new soul music, but on the other hand... He is where he is, where he's from, from Arkansas, from Memphis, and so on and so forth. And Muddy Waters sort of interviewed, of course, with a number of stiff drinks by Max Jones and Melody Maker. Oh, in, in the 1970s, I love Max Jones' yeah. stuff, and he's always talking great about writing. writing. Mm. Muddy Waters is really interesting, this, because he's just about, I think the album he did produced by Johnny Winter on Blue Sky, Hard Again, was just about to be released, which is actually a great Muddy Waters record, you know. But he's playing to white people. That's how he makes his money. I think he's struggling with that. Says, I don't know why, but I'm busier than ever. Now I'm old, more people want to see me than when I was young. Mm. And apparently some backstage visitor comes in and starts asking him about, well, what about the white blues singers? And he says, no, no, the truth. What do you think about it? Do you think a white man can sing a blues like me? That's all. You know, I mean, he's, he's a tough man. Yeah. And, and rightly mm. so. Fair, fair enough, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. 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 It's interesting about the point about him playing just to white audiences. I remember like with Public Enemy, seeing them in 1990 in Birmingham, and the audience was, was mostly black at that point. Mm. Uh, that was a time of fear of a black planet. And, and then, like, later on, about 10, 15 years later, their audiences were almost all white. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there was definitely a difference. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference. And it goes back, in a sense, we're talking about that kind of sort of 
Afrofuturism, yes. about electronics. It's just like I think that white audiences tend to be more invested in the past and like in more conservative and wistfully like sort of retrospective. Late nineties soul band, like that's <laughs> true. <laughs> whereas, <laughs> whereas I think there's much more of an emphasis on the future. Yes. Also, I mean, in, in black music, because if you're black, you're not thinking weren't the 30s great weren't the 40s great no. weren't the 50s great no they were not there were times mm. of like you know gross inequality you know lack of civil rights etc etc the present ain't much to write about either yeah. but the future well yeah. maybe maybe there's something in the future and I think there's always been you know without I mean even like sort of Grimes and Dubstep even yeah. though they have the kind of fantastic cosmological visions of Sun Ra nonetheless it's always about you know the present yes. the future pushing ahead you know yeah. there's much less so, you know, there's much less sort of nostalgia. No, I, I, there's I, nothing I, nostalgic about. So. No, no. Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and also, I think it's a particularly white English or British trait mm. to obsess with the old black music sort of mm. thing. You know, yeah. And, yeah, uh, black music has to reach a certain vintage before it can be. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and also, the, 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 I mean, in sense, you know, when I was in my twenties and thirties, I didn't understand modern black music a lot. I found. Mm. I understood the older stuff, and the mm. new stuff still jarred with me. And then five years later, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah. And I think that's quite a common phenomenon, you know. Mm. Well, you know, you can't spend what you ain't got. You can't lose what you ain't never had. Next piece of 1984 is January 84 from the San Francisco Chronicle. It's pretty riveting. The Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson had died about two weeks before, so this is meant to be an obituary. But actually, Joel Sullivan starts telling this story about how a couple of years before, he had been in the studio with the Beach Boys, that Brian wasn't there, they were trying to record, it all got a bit tits up, the whole thing. So he gets a lift back to Dennis Wilson's place in his VW van, and Dennis sticks a tape of Deep Throat into his VCR and is kind of watching pornography. And then he says, um. me and Charlie, he said, seemingly out of nowhere, we founded the family. And that was the Charlie being Charlie Manson. And Dennis had never spoke to a journalist about his relationship with the Mansons before. The dread unspoken topic had been broached, as far as I know, for the first time with a reporter. He went on to describe the various delights and joys to be found in love between five, six, seven or more people. Manson, he explained, had a gift for attracting young women into his lair. Ultimately, Wilson said, Manson turned strange. I guess he let the drugs get away with him, he said wistfully, as if Manson had let lunacy ruin all their happy, fun and games. Few accounts of the Charles Manson case mention his involvement with the Beach Boys. That's not true. Um, (laughs) Although occasional references to Wilson's and Manson's sharing a house can be found. Manson once sold a song to the Beach Boys, Never Learn Not to Love, recorded on the group's 2020 album, with Dennis Wilson credited as author. However, Wilson and Manson parted company well before the notorious August 69 Sharon Tate, Leon and Rosemary LaBianca killings. But on this night, the talk drifted on to other matters, and Wilson continued to replay over and over orgy scenes from Deep Throat on the huge television screen. I mean, this is a guy... Wilson's not sounding particularly well-adjusted there, either. (laughs) Absolutely. Anyway, it's it's pretty riveting. 1986, Paolo Hewitt, socialist Paolo Hewitt, interviewing Sherelle. I'm very fond of Sherelle. Sherelle, yeah. Great, you know. Sassy love. Yeah, you know. Again, Jamal. Again, Jamal Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and she's she's great actually. She's you know she doesn't she says you know she doesn't want songs to be personal. That's where I think it become a failure when it gets too personal. I never want to sing songs that are based on me. 
Hmm. The thing is, is that Jam and Lewis would maybe write stuff, but they always did it by hanging around with the artists they were writing for for a week or two or even three before they'd even put, hmm. start writing tunes. Interesting. Um, and it, it, her attitude was many. I get across to men as far as style and look, but they don't care if I ever sing them, really. You know, she, she's spiky and pretty cool, actually, yeah. with all this. And then the last piece is just is a fairly long interview with Richard Cook from The Wire in 1988 with Manfred Eicher, oh, yes. the founder of ECM Records. Mm. David, you know about ECM Records. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, I mean, Jan Garbrek and what that yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, they do always have a distinct <laughs> ECM feel, you know, that kind of sort of... It's highly you know. buffed, isn't it? Yes. Um, and he says, I don't impose a sound on music or yeah. an instrument. I try to find its sonic nature. Oh, sure. Mm, exactly. I'm just going to say, I saw that line. I'm mean, no, not sure about that, mate. But, I mean, he comes up very interesting. And actually, when mm. you think about some of the people that he recorded, like Lester Bowie and so on and so forth, that it, yeah. it isn't all fit into that sort Definitely. of... Definitely. I mean, yeah. What was the one from about 1980? The, uh, yeah, the live album that he did. With, yeah, that was an ECM. Thing, I, I, I did yeah. quite, he did a lot of stuff with Keith Jarrett and people like that. Yeah. But I was, or remember, at the time, very wary of ECM records because they mm. had a sort of cold sort of soullessness. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could spot an ECM record at 80 paces, yeah. you know, definitely within, you know, a few seconds. You might be able to name the artist, but you just, oh yeah, ECM. Yeah. 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 But like, I think if you cherry pick some of the stuff that they put out, Fantastic. there is actually there is, yeah. a lot of range and depth I mean, to for instance, what they were doing, and warmth yeah. too. Yeah. And it's beautiful, and it works beautifully a lot of the time, yes. It's, it's, not, it's not, by no means anti-ECM, like Paths Prince by Jan Garbrook from 1981 mm. is, is a beautiful record. Yeah. But there is something curiously intimidating about the label and about his rigor. uh, Yeah, I think there is a sort of there's a sort of structure that can be a little bit almost frightening there. Jasper, you found anything? Yeah, I've got a a couple of things to talk about. First of which is an interview I found with Evan Parker, also from The Wire from 2000. Evan Parker, a very important figure in free improvised music internationally, Mm -hmm. international free music scene. And it's it's one of the... The Wire has this thing called Invisible Jukebox where... You've done a couple of these, David, mm. where you play a bunch of records for a musician and without telling them what it is, and they have to guess. Yeah. And then it sort of leads into a, a conversation about that record, which mm. turns up some really interesting yeah. stuff. And, I mean, I've met Evan Parker. I've actually played with Evan Parker. He, well, he, he led a improvising workshop in a small town near Venice, and I was part of... I was lucky enough to just join in with that by happenstance. And he's a really interesting guy, mm. It was a nice experience. He played the first half of the concert and we then played the second half as a, as a group. Right. He sort of coached us in the afternoon to play in his style of improvised music where he was sort of conducting us in a very loose sense, but it was totally improvised. Mm-hmm. It was a fascinating experience also because I was one of the few English native speakers there the rest were all italian and so when it came to having dinner with him before the concert we had this long conversation because he was sort of cool didn't didn't want to bother he didn't speak any italian he didn't yeah but so he just sort of latched on to onto us native english speakers and we just had this wide-ranging conversation about all sorts of stuff his approach to improvised music i think is actually fairly sensible although you might listen to it and think, God, this guy's really just out there and he doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But actually, 
He says, technique is being able to do what you want to do. If you don't play with technique, then you have the technique not to play with technique. That's perfect technique. So in the end, you're left with the use which the technique is put to, and that can be very interesting, even in the complete absence yeah. of technique. Mm. No, that, that, that's interesting. I, I saw him quite a few times in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was trying to get into, and failing at that time to get into free jazz. And he was always usually the most interesting player on a bandstand. But these gigs were horrible. It's like going to a Trotskyite meeting, you know. There's all these <laughs> sort of people kind of all sitting with their arms folded, mm. you know. Mm. And if someone played anything remotely resembling a tune, there would be a sort of rigorous sort of um, <laughs> re-education programme take place afterwards, you know. Yeah. He's very much not like that. He's sort of like, mm. the, question, yeah. the question is why... Can you not improvise without a partition? Of mm. course you can. I'm very interested in improvising, but I'm interested in improvising that's directed towards producing listenable, good music, yeah. not mm. just some illustration of how well people improvise. Yeah, I, I, mm. th- I, I think that's great. I think it's the context that those shows took place in was the problem. I mean, amusingly <laughs> enough, I was playing some Evan Parker this morning in the office, mm. and it was met with a relatively quickly spoken request to turn it off <laughs> from across the room from, from Paul. <laughs> so I don't know if Paul would then, agree that Evan yeah, Parker... That's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes... Listenable... I mean, music, but I, I mean, I think he's great. Derek Bailey, you know, was always very anti, you know, he had that quote about how, for him, improv, it was a bit like doing a jigsaw or whatever, where the end product for him is just banal. It might be, you know, like a sort of sunlit sort of Bavarian castle or something like that, you know, some grand image. And he just thought the end product was actually banal. It's all about the doing it. Yeah. yeah. And, it's the process. And not like the end product. It's the process. Yeah. yeah. The process. He, um, Derek was a very rigorous guy, though. I mean, you mm. know, one wouldn't want to cross him. But he made this fabulous album quite late in life called Ballads, where he basically standards, he took jazz standards and then scrunched them up. And it's it's absolutely fantastic. Record. It can be electrifying, yeah. getting to so, witness yeah. that improvising yeah. process. Witnessing it seems really, really important. Yes. It seems it's one thing you have to see it being done. I mean, David and I both go to these yeah, uh, Sunday, Sunday afternoons. That's when David and I first met, in, in fact. In, right. in, in Hither Green, our friend Richard Sanderson puts on, which is improvised music, which sometimes is rooted in jazz, more often than not rooted in things like post-punk or whatever, or just electronic noise. Yeah. And I've really come to just love watching improvised music being done on the spot, and, yeah. uh, and it, it, it is. And I, I now play myself. I myself. And it's not. A, I'm. You know, my, my trio. We record our rehearsals, but it's never about the recording. It's actually as it's about doing it. It's about the actual mm. process. Of but I think it is interesting. There's rigor in a sense. There's a sort of. And like AMM, you know, it's yes. not like anyone can do it. I mean, AMM sometimes hardly anyone can do it. Yeah. Or, you know, you really, yeah, yeah, there yeah. is rigor. You have to work up to this. You're not just, you can't come with like, they played in Berlin or something once, and then all these bunch of hippies started kind of coming in and trying to join in, bashing on. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> says, no, 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 that's not that. Stop it. Um, Stop it. You know, there is a, a certain rigor is involved, whether it's virtuosity exactly, but certainly. Oh, yeah, but, de- but definitely, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's something that's kind of thought, you know. I think it's, it's intention. I, mm. I, 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 you you can't, it's just making a noise is, yeah. is utterly pointless. Yeah. I hate jamming. I mean, you see it at some, mm. you know, where you get like five or six free players jamming, and it's horrible. Not directed at anything. It's, it's the, mm. the, 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 you know, you have to think about what you're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. You know. The next, the next piece, 
it actually ties into all of this rather nicely, I think, which is something that we haven't... We've talked a lot about avant-garde music mm-hmm. and improvised music and stuff, but what we haven't talked about is the humour that it can be suffused with. And this is a piece that you wrote, David, for The Wire in 2005 about where humour and music can meet. Mm. And I think it's a really fascinating piece because you make a point that isn't often made, which is that people like Kraftwerk and even John Cage, they're doing they're, the, what they do inherently is funny on some level. Mm, 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 mm. And you say such humour is a vital component in the avant-garde's mission to interrogate the absurd assumptions of the straight, the sane, the sensible, the normal. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's a crucial point to make because good avant-garde music is not all about just sort of people sitting around looking serious, saying mm. isn't life mysterious. There is a sort of sense of, of wit and humour and funniness mm-hmm. to the whole yeah. proceedings that if you don't get that, if you don't accept that, if you don't sort of take part in that, mm-hmm. there's an element that's missed, there's an element that's lacking, and that, I, I that mean, can make it all seem very abstruse yeah, and yeah. Going back bizarre. to, to Trotsky's meeting sort of thing I was telling you, is that the London Musicians Co-op at that time in the 70s, they really did have things like, someone played a tune last night, it's not <laughs> allowed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really off-putting about the free improvising musical kind of avant-garde of that period, it was, yeah. it was basically... Humour was not allowed, and 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 you couldn't make musical jokes. You couldn't make any jokes, and you know, it's just soul destroying. That sort yeah. of I mean, one thing that I've realised, you know, about going to these gigs regularly is there was a time when I thought the improv was going to die, pretty much with that generation of practitioners, mm. or whatever. You know, they were mm. from their sixties, seventies, whatever. But it's obviously it's, it's in a very healthy state, it's isn't really it? In terms healthy. of participation, you know, sort of gender wise, age wise, whatever like that. Yeah. You know, it's in a really healthy state, and people. I mean, you know, even, you know, quite often that scene is just drawn from, like, south-east London. Yeah, you know, yeah. But the number of people that are really hitting a mark yeah. is, is extraordinary. No, I, 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 think, I, think, I, I think that's right. And I think there are a lot of reasons why it's had a new lease of life. And I think one of the reasons is we get so much stuff through, done wires, done through our electronic sources, through yeah. the internet and all that, that actually just simply being in a room with people playing hmm. is a refreshing experience. For sure. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. 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 But the, anyway. the, the, the sort of slightly counterpoint to that is a point that, that you make is that people still struggle with avant-garde music in a way that they mm. don't necessarily with avant-garde visual art yeah. painting mm-hmm. specifically yeah. and this is I mean you wrote a whole book That's about right, this yeah. but <laughs> I, I don't know I don't know whether this piece was when did you write that book oh I wrote the book in in I think two, yeah 2008 yeah so this is sort of presaging that yeah, slightly yeah, yeah. where you where you say Abstract visual art is less prone to such attacks as mm. Dada and Futurist events and Stravinsky's Ride of Spring were even met mm. with. Tate Modern is packed every weekend with people who gawp reverentially at avant-garde objets d'art, who know that to jeer at the supposed formlessness and mess of a Jackson Pollock would expose them as sort of ignorant Philistine lampooned in the mm. Tony Hancock film The Rebel as long ago as mm. 1960. Mm. Yeah. Yet many of the same people would feel it's intellectually respectable to deride Stockhausen as a random anti-musical bleeps and bloops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's a very the, interesting That's the germ point. of that book. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's and it, it, is, it is still mm. the case, and yeah. it's an odd thing that people are somehow made uncomfortable by a lot of avant-garde music. I think, yeah. And they're not, yeah. they don't want to engage with it because yeah. the general feeling is not the same one as it is with, with avant-garde I mean, the Tate Modern is not just one of the biggest sort of art galleries. It's one of the biggest tourist attractions, full stop, in, in Europe. It's extraordinary. And it's dedicated to non-representative, non-figurative, abstract art, whatever. And there's very... Very little sort of sound. There's very little of sound art or sound as a component there. But that's something that's changing. I think there's much, much more of a kind mm-hmm. of merging now between 
you know, the avant-garde of like music yeah. and art. And um, film is another interesting one on that, on that front. Week, but I yeah. do think there's an interesting difference with film and music as compared to just a painting in the mm. sense that a painting you can look at mm. and you can choose how long you look at exactly. it for. Yes. That's one of the things I want to mention when we get the duration factor. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in the Rothko room, you could sort of spend 10 minutes in there. Mm, yeah, yeah, Rothko, excellent. Yeah, what did, oh, I, I was in Rothko room, yes, I can't remember. You, you, spending 10 minutes listening to Stockhouse and then leaving is called giving up. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So, so there's this sort of sense that you're subjected mm. to... Yeah. to uh, I, I mean, you're, you know, you've both made a very good point. I think that the increasing acceptance of installation art mm. has been a way in for people to start listening to, you know, avant-garde or difficult or interesting music um, in a sense that... You visit it, you look at it the same way as you look at a painting, and the sound is going on, but then you leave and the sound may continue yeah. or, or, or otherwise. And again, when we're talking about this, the people getting interested in this sort of area of music, maybe that's, that's part of one of the reasons. Is that the, uh, I mean, the, the installations have become utterly acceptable to gallery goers now. Well, one mm. of the very best things I saw recently was Christian Marclay's The Clock, which was at the Tate Modern, mm. which was fantastic. It's a 24-hour film installation mm-hmm. that... Every minute is corresponding to a minute taken. It's a collage of different scenes from films, hundreds and hundreds, mm. thousands of different films. Every minute is corresponding. But Christian Markley also has done a bunch of music stuff as well. So I think it is, yeah. you're right, it is becoming more accepted. Yeah. Right. I think we probably have to leave it there. I think we, we, we time. I mean, do. I'd happily talk about bleeps and bloops forever. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just going to have a great fun finding sourcing the pieces of music to illustrate this particular Absolutely. episode. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming in. That oh, was, thank was, you that, very that, much. That, that it's been a privilege. It's abs- been a real pleasure. Abs- thank you. Brilliant. And um, we're going to go out with another clip of Francis Rossi, this time talking about his relationship with Rick Parfitt, his co-frontman with the Quo. <laughs> we'll be back next week, hopefully with Simon Whistler as guesting. Should, yes, should, should, should be, be fun. Good, should be good fun. Good. And uh, on that happy note, we'll see you around. Thanks Bye. for listening. Bye-bye. friends really all these years but you don't see each other when you're not touring not well we're very the the other thing too is we've known each other that long yeah people say it's like a marriage and all that and i said yeah yeah then i realized it is because i spent more time with rick than i've done with either girlfriends wives or anything Mm. or children and generally people i'm doing stuff today now how's your relationship with rick well how's your relationship with your husband you say to me well yes if i ask you that in six months you it's fine, yeah. I keep asking for 30 years to start going, I don't know, there might be I a know. problem. You, know what fact, I mean? you don't have to think about it, no, it's, it's just, a sign. We just good sign. We get on quite well, there are times we don't talk to each other, we don't fight, which is quite good. Most uh, duos of a sort of this sort will be whacking each other by That was Francis Rossi of Status Quo in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2010, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Stubbs. The paperback edition of Mars by 1980, The Story of Electronic Music, is published by Faber and out now. 
The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. And that's all for this episode. See you again next week. Bye-bye.